So good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm David Hempton, the Dean of the Divinity School, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to Harvard Divinity School, uh, particularly uh, Artemis uh, uh, Dukowski, Amber Moulton, uh, Sana Mustafa, who will join Professors Kevin Madigan and Dan McCannon for the discussion after the screening. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, especially. Um, many thanks also to um, uh, Susan Swartz Endowment for the support of this evening's event. We're very fortunate to have Susan among us, which is a great pleasure. Thank you for coming. Um, along with her friend, I think, um, the award-winning documentary producer and Harvard alumna, Geraldine White-Dreyfus. Is Geraldine here? Ah, she will be here. Uh, so she's also the co-executive producer of tonight's film, right? So we'll be glad to have her. So before I turn things over to the HDS librarian, Doug Gregg, who will lead us through the rest of the evening. I'd like to say just a little about the inspiration for this event. This year we celebrate the 200th anniversary of Harvard Divinity School's founding in 1816. And I'm glad to say that we're talking and thinking a good deal about the school's future. But we're also looking back on our past with a critical and sometimes celebratory eye. One of the moments I'm most proud of um, in the history of our school came quite early in HDS's history. In 1832, our students established the Philanthropic Society in the Divinity School of Harvard University, which was dedicated, quote, to the various benevolent projects of the day, which included uh, prison ministry, the promotion of peace and education, and the alleviation of poverty. This was really a, an active and a productive society. The concern for justice and for the suffering of others, not only among our students, but also our faculty and alumni, has been one of the hallmarks of the HDS community through uh, the decades of its history. It continues today in the thousands of hours of service our field education students perform each year in student initiatives for racial justice and healing, environmental sustainability, and many other causes and in the contributions of countless alumni who work for a better world. In this aspect of the school's character, uh, um, that brings us together tonight. It's, it's this aspect that brings us together tonight to consider not only the Sharps' extraordinary sacrifice during World War II, but also one of the signature humanitarian crises of our own time, the plight of millions of refugees from Syria and elsewhere around the world. It's also why I'm very pleased that HDS can host this event and that Andover Harvard Theological Library could play such an important role in the film's production. As you may know, Waitzel Sharp was a Unitarian minister. His efforts and those of his wife came at the behest of the American Unitarian Association. HDS was at its establishment and for many years after a training ground for leading Unitarian clergy, such as Theodore Parker, William Greenleaf Elliott, and before he abandoned formal ministry, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Today, that relationship, now with the Unitarian Universalist Association, continues in Andover Harvard's role as the official archive for the UUA, including the records of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, these religious organizations of great names, um, um, which these were the archives and records used by um, uh, Artemis Dukowski and co-director Ken Burns for the film we're about to watch. It also carries on in programs like the Greeley International Internship, which honors the Reverend Dana McLean Greeley, an HDS alumnus, who served as the very first president of the UUA and which supports interreligious understanding. So I'm very proud, both as dean and as someone who, like all of you, cares deeply about human rights, to have this event here on the HDS campus. I know all of you are eager to watch the film, more eager than to watch the film and to hear me, and hear from our panel of experts. So I'll close now with my thanks again to Artemis Jukowski for his important work, to our panelists for sharing their knowledge, to Susan for her generous support, and to all of you for joining us here this evening. So please enjoy Defying the Nazis, the Sharps War, and the discussion that follows. Thank you and welcome. Um, so, um, uh, powerful film, obviously. Uh, even those of us who have seen it once before or, or more are still 
moved by it. Uh, and I think Artemis said he's seen it hundreds of times and sees something new every time he sees it. Uh, but a wonderful experience. And now we want to go a step further and have this distinguished panel of guests uh, talk to us about their reflections on the film and also how it relates to a broader world of, of uh, a similar problem. You know, the problem of refugees has, if anything, gotten even worse since the Second World War, and it's very much in the news right now. Uh, and so uh, some of them will relate uh, what they saw here to their own experiences and to um, current problems with regard to that. Um, I'm going to introduce the moderator of our panel, and then he will introduce the other panelists. Uh, we'll have about a half hour of uh, listening to them uh, reflect, and then you'll have opportunity to make comments, ask questions of them, uh, and then we'll um, have one final activity af after that. Um, Dan McCannon. Uh, uh, joined the Harvard Divinity School faculty in 2008 as Ralph Waldo Emerson Unitarian Universalist Association Senior Lecturer in Divinity. Uh, I think he has the longest title of anybody at the school. Um, uh, after teaching for 10 years before that at the College of St. Benedict, St. John's University in Minnesota. His research focuses on religious movements for social transformation in the United States from the abolitionist era to the present, with a particular emphasis on the contributions that liberal and esoteric religious traditions make to socio-political radicalism. He also teaches and writes on Unitarian Universalist history, theology, and ethics. And we appreciate his willingness to moderate tonight's panel discussion. Dan? Thank you so much, uh, Doug, and thanks to all of you for being here, and thank you especially to Artemis and all of the people um, whose love and devotion have made this uh, story available uh, for all of us to reflect on. It's my honor and delight to introduce the four panelists who will begin our conversation about the film, about the legacy of Martha and Wade Still Sharp, and about our contemporary challenge to work in solidarity with all the people around the world who today face persecution in their home communities and their home countries. Our first panelist is the filmmaker and visionary behind Defying the Nazis, Artemis Joukowsky. Artemis is an experienced filmmaker and disability rights activist who founded No Limits Media, which produced the documentary Ice Warriors about the US Paralympic hockey team. Artemis is himself a silver medal winning Paralympic athlete in table tennis. He has spent decades researching the story of his grandparents, Martha and Wade Still Sharp, and sharing that story with ever wider audiences. I've met him a few times at general assemblies of the Unitarian Universalist Association, and I'm always impressed by your, your steady perseverance uh, in making this story known. Uh, next, we have Amber Moulton, who is one of the people who is now carrying on the Sharps' legacy at the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, the organization that grew out of the work they were doing uh, during the Second World War. As leader of the Service Committee's Emergent Research Program, Amber raises awareness of critical human rights issues around the world. Previously, she earned a PhD in African American Studies here at Harvard, and taught at Harvard, Northeastern, and the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater. She's the author of The Fight for Interracial Marriage Rights in Antebellum, Massachusetts. Next, we have Kevin Madigan, the Wynn Professor of Ecclesiastical History, who has taught here at Harvard Divinity School since 2000. He's the author of several books on medieval Christian history and of several articles in the field of Holocaust studies. He's done extensive research in the Vatican archives in preparation for a new book on the treatment of religious minorities during the fascist period. Finally, Sana Mustafa lives at the heart of today's most urgent refugee crisis. She fled the Syrian war in 2013 and came to the United States as a refugee. Now working as a community development activist, 
She has shared her story at the United Nations headquarters, at the National Press Club, at the Franklin Roosevelt Presidential Library, the White House, and many universities, all at the same time pursuing her second undergraduate degree in political science at Bard College. Please join me in welcoming our four panelists. Uh, after sitting down to join them, I will pose several questions to our panel, then open the discussion to all of you in the audience. My first question is this. What similarities and differences do you notice between the world the Sharps inhabited and the world we live in today? Does the current refugee crisis call for a response similar to what we saw in the film or something quite different? I would like, um, obviously it's working. Um, thank you first for the introduction and I would like to thank the Harvard Divinity School, um, UUC, Susan, and everyone who worked on putting together this event and advocating for um, the refugee crisis that we live with these days and memorizing how people dealt with it decades ago. I would like to answer your questions by um, highlighting the, uh, one of the scenes when the survivors remembered March uh, 15th, 1939 for them because that something happened that day that really changed their lives. That day for me is July 2nd, 2013 mm. when the Syrian regime kidnapped my dad and arrested him. Due to his detention, we were forced to flee Syria because, of course, they used women to put political pressure on the man so that he can confess what they want to, to hear. So that day, I do actually remember a lot. And watching the documentary, there are so many mo moments that I felt so associated. The other moments was when they were talking how they fled with nothing and they had to go through the mountains, they had to smuggle, deal with smugglers and everything. And we don't need to go that far anymore, it's still happening. You know, we left with nothing. With nothing, and I mean it also literally with nothing. My mom and my other sisters walked over 17 hours fleeing our village in the middle of Syria to the borders of Turkey. And also having had risked their lives going through checkpoints and dealing with different smugglers to not go on government checkpoints. So they survived in Turkey. Lucky me, I literally arrived to the US a week before his detention. Mm -hmm. So I actually, I came here originally on a two months training, summer training in 2013. And then I, after a week of my arrival on July 2nd, received the news that my dad got detained and I lost connection with my family for 17 hours until I figured out that Actually, they made it to Turkey. And, and I just was watching, and I, I think many of you felt, oh, we wish we were there. Maybe we could have done what the Charps did. Well, you don't need to wish. Now it's the time. Now it is the time when you can do something. I wish, I wish there are Charps now. Maybe they could reunite, reunite me with my family. That my mom and my sister are still in Turkey. We are unable to be reunited because of the visa, because of the, what we see now on the news, the xenophobic rhetoric, the hatred rhetoric against refugees, because they accuse us of being terrorists, whereas we are fleeing that terror, we're fleeing the Assad regime terror. I call it a Nazi regime. Assad regime is not different than Hitler. Assad as a leader is not different. It's just what the media brings to you. We lived under that regime and we know how hard it is. And I wish just similar couples could come and save us and save the so many refugees in Europe. And it's important to highlight that all of those who think of taking such initiative, you don't need to go through such a great danger that the Charps went through because you can just get on a plane and go to Europe. You don't need to do all the things they did. They were amazing by the things I did, but you guys could just literally get on a plane or try to advocate in your, with your senators and your communities to bring more refugees. And I, this is, I, really, I just couldn't, I, I, myself, it was very emotional, it was very touching, it was very relevant watching the documentary. And I cannot believe that the history is just repeating itself and we're, we're gonna watch 100 maybe a year later. 
documentary about my family, maybe, or other Syrian family. Mm. And, but we need the sharps then. I call for the sharps. Thank you. Pardon? I mean, I think the, the parallels, as you so beautifully said, are haunting to me. And, um, you know, when you think of the greatest victims of these kind of moments, um, they're women and children, uh, princ principally. And for me, I think that's the resonance in this story, was to tell the, the story through the, the voices of children and to see their childhood, but to see them as adults speaking about these moments like they were yesterday. And that's what's happening to 65 million people today. And we're not, we're not gonna live in a, in a productive, effective, peaceful world with 65 million refugees. It's not possible. So I think this is a moment where our isolationism, like the isolationism of this period, has to be looked at with an open heart. Um, I think that this political conversation about immigrants is um, naive to what America is about. We're all people of immigrant backgrounds. And I think we need to understand that this quest for humans to live a safe and productive life is something that we talk about in our constitution, but really is part of a world conversation that is missing, uh, a, a, a world commitment to each other. And uh, I think that's what this problem allows us to to embrace and do as exactly as you say, to go to Europe. Amber? Is this, am I on? Thank you. Fantastic, thank you to both of you for both for this film and also for sharing your own story. Um, and I, I don't wanna sort of bring a, a dim view of our political system, um, but I do wanna just highlight a couple of things that people have mentioned. Um, you know, one of the things that we are aware of um, is the kind of really disturbing similarity between the xenophobic rhetoric and the sort of vitriolic rhetoric in our own U.S. political system um, and what we saw, frankly, even from the United States in the 1930s. Um, so uh, there were proposals to bring uh, 10,000 um, Jewish children to the United States in 1939, uh, Senate proposals that were then quashed by the kind of rhetoric we hear now. Um, things like these are going to be really uh, it, Nazi infiltrated um, groups um, and that there is a security threat that we face by bringing in refugees. Uh, we hear the exact same rhetoric in the last few years uh, coming from our own political leaders. And, um, and from, the, from the perspective of someone who works in an advocacy organization where we do advocacy um, you know, with, these, with colleagues and, uh, and those who would be sympathetic on these causes, um, I do think it's important to remember that the, I hate to say the other side, but certainly the anti-immigrant um, side of this debate is quite loud. Um, and we might not realize that if we live in a, a more cloistered environment, let's say in a liberal Massachusetts town, um, but there actually arguably are stronger and louder lobbyists on the sort of um, the side of strict border security and anti-refugee um, laws than there are um, sort of on the more open-hearted side. So I do just urge you to not sit back idly, but, all, but to be actively involved, uh, certainly by potentially doing something as, as dramatic as going to work with refugees in Europe, uh, but then also certainly working with your, in, within your own communities to break down barriers, to become welcoming communities to, uh, to refugees, uh, and to breaking down stigma associated with, for, for instance, anti-Muslim rhetoric that you might hear in your communities. Um, and uh, you know, we can certainly talk more about that as the conversation goes on. Well, um, thank you for those comments. Um, I wonder if I could just make um, a couple of uh, comments um, historical in nature, uh, which we connect uh, some of these uh, contemporary issues uh, with what we know about rescues uh, and rescuers during the uh, Second World War, uh, during the Holocaust. Um, first of all, um, I would say that it's generally true, uh, as in Artemis's film, that um, we don't hear much about governments, right, uh, or states. Um, and I, I think that's basically the, uh, the case uh, in the Second World War as well. Um, we had anti-Semites uh, who were in charge of 
um, getting visas for uh, Jews in the United States, and generally the Anglophone countries failed. Among the other countries that uh, I think failed quite dramatically uh, are the Vatican, although I don't want to say too much more about that. Um, a second uh, issue uh, that occurs to, is, occurs to me is that it's often um, individuals from denominations that have been persecuted in history that themselves, who themselves, like the Sharps, become rescuers. So, for example, we know from the time that Servetus was burned by, with Calvin's approval, uh, that at least these proto-Unitarians were, uh, were quite viciously persecuted. The same, I think many of you know about the story of Le Chambon sur Lignon in France, where something like 5,000 uh, Jews were saved by a Huguenot pastor. Um, and of course, the Huguenots were uh, quite mercilessly persecuted by uh, French Catholics uh, as well. Um, so it's not countries and institutions, uh, it seems to me, by and larger governments. Uh, but individuals, and individuals actually very, very much like the Sharps, who saw these exceptional acts as not extraordinary, but as things that any person would do. And of course, we know that's not true. And finally, I would say that it's, it's interesting that when the Sharps talk about their own motivation, and you'll learn much more about this in Artemis's terrific book, they don't often invoke, at least explicitly, Christian motivation. They say, this is just what ordinary, decent people would do. Now, that still leaves the question of whether they were implicitly formed by the religious formation. I think they probably were. But it is interesting that, uh, that, that they just say, this is just not an extraordinary act. Um, this is just what any, any good person would do. Thank you all. Um, since you were uh, calling out our particular religious communities uh, for honor, I would want to underscore that the Unitarian Service Committee in many ways was modeled on the American Friends Service Committee and that the work that, that Quakers were already doing um, and had been doing since, uh, since the First World War in war relief was really part of how the Sharps figured out to do what they were doing. Uh, my next question kind of builds on what Kevin was just saying. Uh, what were the personality traits that made it possible for the Sharps to act the way they did? And how can religious and spiritual traditions cultivate those traits in, in more of us today? I think one of the things that we are very interested in from this film is the notion of moral courage. How does moral courage form? And, and what kind of um, understanding of altruism can come from a conversation like this film. And one thing, one thing that you do find in the psychiatric studies um, is that some degree of personal suffering and overcoming obstacles becomes part of a motivation to help others. The other thing is the deep humanism that I think my grandparents felt toward everybody. Uh, they were not swayed by the superficialities of the color of your skin or the accent of your voice or whether you spoke one language or another. They were in love with all people. And I think that kind of exuberant humanism is something that happened at this institution. They learned that sense of love of people at Harvard. And, and I think part of what you have done well at this divinity school from the very beginning is allowed for difference. You've allowed Buddhists to be with Protestants, with Christians, with, with people of all faith, and you believe in the collective wisdom of that experience. And I think we need to take that to the world. I think we need to use not just tolerance. Tolerance is almost, you know, I'll, I'll, I will forgive you for being different from me or having two more beautiful legs than mine or whatever it might be. But it's about embracing the difference. It's about engaging in curiosity and in love of difference. And that's what my grandparents showed us. Over and over again, it was their love of other human beings, not about political 
slogans and what party you believed in and whether you're a man or a woman, it didn't matter to them. It was about this humanism. And they learned that here. They learned that at Harvard. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about that, that we often, you know, Harvard people and Unitarians and all these traditions are so modest by nature that they never tell their own story about that love. But once you see it in the pages of my grandparents' memoirs, once you see why they did what they did, how they risked themselves, it was the sense that, that this life was valuable. And, and that's, I think, the question of, of how we can teach that altruism, that deep sense of love. I would, um, I'm happy to add to this that I think it's easy um, to documentaries or my story or other stories to get people sympathized by a cause but it's very hard to get them empathized to, to get them to take actions and I think that uh, what makes a person take an action it's very personal that it's it's very internal and I think it has a lot to do with the way you were brought up to think beyond yourself um, and personally, from my, my experience, and I think from what um, Artemis has just said, that family, it's, a, it's the first environment that could help person to become more of a doer than a thinker or a sympathizer. And I think um, just, I grew up in a family that before you think about yourself, you think about your neighbor. And I think really um, working on planting these values on our, in our kids, in our friends, in our families, it's a first step to get more sharps in the world. One of the things that I'm really struck by, particularly with regard to Martha, is that she's a socially engaged person. And she comes out of a tradition of social reform. Um, not just in her own experience, but really a tradition that goes back to the you know, American women's movements of the post-American uh, Revolution period, where you have women who are engaged in benevolent work, and that is seen as one of the things that's actually part of their job. Um, and this belief that Artemis, I like the way that they put it in the film, that um, essentially that, the, the, um, that it is up to, to human beings to decide what happens in society. Um, and I think there's a long tradition of that in our society, certainly, and globally. Um, and you just, uh, part of the, one of the traits is believing that, believing that you can be socially engaged, that you can be part of the settlement movement in Chicago, and that it matters that you would actually go and work with a diverse group of, of young people who, are, um, who have migrated to the country and who are incorporating themselves into society. Um, it would, that you actually believe you could make a difference if you went and tried to help refugee children get out of a place. Um, and um, and the, the wonderful thing about that is that it doesn't have to be an individualized experience. Um, the history of social reform is actually a collective. Um, and that engaging yourself with other social reformers, whether it be organizations or religious communities, um, is, is a way to actually engage with that kind of, um, that kind of ethos. So in, in some ways that makes me feel a little bit more hopeful because you don't get the sense that if you're not quite as amazing as the Sharps, right, uh, you can still make a difference. And I would urge us all to, to remember that. Dan, I think it's, <coughs> excuse me, a fascinating question because, um, and, Artemis actually draws this out beautifully in the book. And it's useful for us to remember that the Sharps were ordered, commanded to go to Europe. I sometimes think of them as uh, Catholic priests and priestesses uh, who are ordered by their bishops to do something and obey and comply. Um, on the other hand, they just, just spontaneously accepted uh, this call. And something about that spontaneous uh, acceptance, I think, is, is unique to these two exceptional people, even though, again, uh, they didn't see themselves, uh, uh, they didn't see themselves uh, that way uh, at all. Um, I guess just one more uh, sort of historical comment. The, the scholars who have studied rescuers uh, and the personal characteristics of rescuers um, have drawn up all sorts of characteristics, but one of which is that um, they tend to be self-autonomous. They don't depend on the approval of others, but their self-approval and so forth. One interesting thing, again, Artemis brings this out in the book, is that uh, Reverend Sharp, before he went on his, I think, first journey, 
gave a sermon which was covered in the globe in isolationist America when people like Charles Lindbergh were, uh, who also had an anti-Semitic streak uh, to him, were circulating around America urging us not to enter the war. Uh, Reverend Sharp uh, said, we've talked enough. Uh, this, the pacifist route does not work. We need to, we need to use force here. And I actually think that's, that's interesting to know. Uh, that's interesting to know. He, I, I don't think many people agreed with him. I don't think many Unitarians agreed with him. Uh, but he was, he, he needed his own self-approval uh, to say something. Uh, I'm not advocating pacifism. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that in a uh, culture, uh, an isolationist culture, he was courageous enough. Or uh, what shall I say? He, he, he wanted to say that force was necessary to, uh, to bring this uh, awful nihilistic, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, fascist power uh, uh, to defeat it. Yeah, that juxtaposition of rebelliousness and obedience yeah. is, is fascinating. Uh, and that's a good segue again to the next question, which is what were the institutional factors uh, that allowed Unitarianism to support work with refugees in the 1930s um, at a time when uh, many Americans and many Unitarians uh, were not interested in this at all. Uh, and how can we strengthen institutions uh, to commit their resources to this kind of work today? Well, I think the desire for the church to make a stand in Europe was largely inspired by their sister church in Prague saying, don't send us some money, we need Americans. Americans need to show up because the only thing the Nazis are afraid of are Americans. And it was a very explicit request. It wasn't just come over and help us fill out paperwork um, or bring us some dollars. It was about making a stand as not just a church but as an, an American institution. And I think that's a very powerful part of the story today that we can draw parallels of, of how desperate the world is, not for American hegemony, not just for, not for American domination or for, for boasting our greatness, uh, for American participation in solving these problems. And this refugee crisis is a great opportunity. Uh, amongst these 65 million are writers and artists, and you think of every country who has ever accepted refugees, those countries have benefited every time, almost 100% of the time. If you look at the actual numbers of what refugees have done for this country, I think it's about an infinite rate of return. So we have to change this notion of refugees. We have to change this, not just uh, uh, prejudice against people, uh, the stereotyping of all Muslims being X, but imagine, imagine if in 1939 our president decided, or 1940, that in including all the J Japanese we were going to intern, we would take all the Germans and put them into a camp too. Eisenhower would never have been the commander of our army. So really, you, you really have to think what is an American and why that's important. And I think I start with the American government because... I think we have an election right now that is not just about you know, the light against darkness, it is about a massive confusion about the history of, of immigration and of what refugees represent for the world. And these beautiful people, your family, um, not only deserve a chance to live a peaceful life, but we are commanded by our faith and by our Americanism to to do more. And I can imagine how frustrated President Obama is right now about this issue. Uh, and, and I love what the Pope is doing, and I love what Mrs. Merkel has done. And so we have to look at institutions, because institutions um, empower people. And, and Harvard is one of those institutions uh, that played an amazing role during this story. You know, the archives are filled with not just the heroic things that Harvard people did, but will you take in this family? Will you take in that person? Will you help with this person? Very much individual uh, charity and support. And I think that's what we have to reinvent. So I'm in the process, happily, 
I've just been accepted to accept a Syrian family in our home. And um, it's going to change my home. It's going to change my life. It's going to change my children. You know, it's going to change me. I want that change. You know, so that's what I, I think this story inspires. Yeah, I just want to echo um, one of the things that Artemis brought up about institutions. Um, again, just trying to undergird this idea that you don't need to do this by yourself. Um, there are, in fact, institutions that are dedicated to doing this kind of work. Um, and uh, before I get into a little bit about what we do at UUSC and sort of follow up to what some of this early work was in the 30s, um, I want to just mention that um, I think it might be particularly interesting to this audience, one of the key components of this work both historically and today, is interfaith collaboration, right? So you heard in the film, and we've discussed already, right? It's not just Mar Martha and Wade still going out on their, on their own or with their denomination. They're actually working with Quakers, right? And now, increasingly, I would argue, there's more interfaith collaboration, arguably because of breakdowns of denominations and that sort of thing, or, or less religiosity, at least among Americans. Um, but certainly interfaith collaboration is an important element of how you can get this work done in, a, in an effective way. Um, and then you have organizations like UUSC, where I'm very, very privileged to work, um, that are dedicated uh, to working on these issues. And you can engage with organizations like this um, to, uh, for instance, uh, I have a colleague who's I think here right now, who developed this incredible um, toolkit for people who want to advocate on behalf of uh, refugee rights in the United States. Um, and I actually have a bunch with me, so anybody who's interested can take one. It includes things all the way from um, placemats in multiple languages that you can use to have a welcome dinner in your community, all the way up through kind of boilerplate for media releases and language that you could use to advocate for uh, with your congressmen and senators. Um, and so I would just urge you to engage with the organizations that do this work um, and to, um, at least as the sort of initial steps, to get yourself involved and, and uh, to be able to sort of put your uh, moral and ethical uh, standing into action if you don't already. Absolutely. I actually want to ask a question here is that this is great of uh, this work of course it's very important and great the the work that is being done on civil society level organization level and inst institution like NGOs but however how can we reach the scale that the charts reach by being able to bring people here it's not 10,000 it's nothing bringing 10,000 of course I agree that uh, Obama administration has been doing good work, let's say, to on the refugee crisis, but it is not enough comparing to any other country. So I just, how can we work on a system that in the documentary, people were begging for a, for a visa? It's happening the same now. How can we reach that level? I think this is the question for everyone to think of. Well, just to give you a sense of Martha's chutzpah, she was part of that delegation uh, in 1939 to the State Department, and they went to the governor of Alaska and said, you know, we have, we'd like to bring 10,000 Jews to Alaska. And it was purely anti-Semitism that had that be no, but imagine if she was successful with those 10,000 people. I mean, that's really the opportunity lost. Um, and I think for us, the paradigm shift is about humanity and is about who we are and where we all come from and how lucky we are and our role is not to covet what we have and protect what we have as if it's all going to go away if, if someone comes here it's to share it in this abundance and and build stronger relationships and bring the 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 beauty of americanism to the world in the same way the sharps were the americans at that moment to step into that situation Imagine what they said to those people in Czechoslovakia, what they said, I am coming to a place I've never been before where everyone is on the train leaving and I'm the only one coming in, but here I am. You know, and that's what we, what we need to encourage today. Um, I just wanna add <clears throat> uh, one comment about Artemis's book, and that is surprisingly, the book I think uh, communicates very, very clearly how institutions ought not to undertake this work. Uh, Artemis, you talk at great length about 
the sorts of tensions uh, that were created between USC here at home and, um, and the Sharps. For example, uh, one of Sharps best friends, Robert Dexter, uh, gave them what he called a roving commission to do what, what they decided was best to do. And Martha made the delivery of milk uh, in the Vichy zone, in the unoccupied zone, a priority. And Dexter really interfered with that and said, no, you know, no more. Um, which, which is just, I just wanted, which leads me to a question for you, Artemis, is um, what did you make? I, I wasn't sure why Dexter yeah. wanted to assert his authority that way. And seemed to, he, it, he seemed it was to because pee. Dexter was giving, the, he was enforcing the blockade and he was pr providing the OSS with the intelligence that the Sharps were giving them without the Sharps knowing it. And, and, and it created a rift of trust because the Sharps would never have given this data to, you know, even if they thought it could help. Um, because, you know, we're talking about individual lives, you know, and in this case, high profile Jewish emigres uh, who would have been killed. And I think there was this sense that um, when, Char when, when my grandfather realized that this information was being given to the OSS, um, that there was a much bigger issue than just the milk that was being delivered. So for those who don't know, my grandparents, when they arrived the second trip into France, went to the ambassador of France and said, what is needed in France? What is going on? They said, the babies are dying. There's no more milk. Uh, the Nazis have taken everything to the north and we literally have an epidemic of babies who just don't have any, any nutrition. So she arranged with the Nestle company to, to bring the first large-scale milk delivery into what was then still Vichy France. They were still negotiating what would happen in that area and rescued 800 babies with the milk. But that actual delivery caused a break in the embargo and you know, Dulles was very angry about this and who are these sharps and what are they doing and, you know, and actually one of the most beautiful things of the story was going to Poe, France and going into the top secret archives of the French government and reading top secret, who is this American woman? What is she doing here? Why is she delivering this? It must be she's a spy. And so they are following her and here I'm finding these other documents showing why aren't they listening to me? And now I realize, oh, she, they think he, she's a spy. And it's because of the saving of these children that they say, okay, she's fine. She's an American angel. We'll let her operate here. And that talk about chutzpah. I mean, she really actually had to go to the Vichy officials and bang on the door and say, I'm feeding French children. Let me feed French children. Oh, okay, they're French children. Okay, we'll feed the French children. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. We'll feed the children now, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's... I mean, you know, you think about that in that context. Um, but yeah. uh, it, it is interesting that uh, your grandfather actually returned and he said he was disillusioned. Uh, actually, or maybe you said he was, uh, he was disillusioned. And yet, um, despite that, they did such admirable things. They overcame their disillusion. Yeah. Yeah. My last question is, um, has to do with the way you lifted up in the film uh, the high personal price that the Sharps and their family paid for this work. And I wonder, is this inevitable, or are there things that all of us could be doing to ensure that courageous people who follow their consciences don't have to pay such a price in their personal commitments? Well, I think your family is paying this price. You know, all of our families had people who were courageous that left where they were from or helped someone else. I think we have to remember, um, you know, that, 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 you know, in telling a story, bad things do happen too. And I didn't want to put my grandparents on a pedestal that no one could relate to. I wanted you to see their humanity, their mistakes, their regrets. Uh, because otherwise, if you saw the film the first 20 minutes, you would just think, oh my God, these are you know, remarkable people. How could you relate to that? But if you see that in a, human, in a Unitarian context, then you tell the truth. You tell the whole story. You show the challenges. You show the fears. You show the mistakes they made. 
because all of us make mistakes and all of us have fears. And the real question is, how do we overcome them? How do we, how do we get to our, our bigger self uh, in anything we do? And I think the Sharps um, teach us that in their own journals, in their own writings, how hard it was, how hard it was, but we're gonna persevere. And for me, I learned it as a young boy when I met my grandmother, I was 14 years old, I was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease, and the doctor was like, well, we don't know what's gonna happen, and my, mother, my grandmother said, we're not gonna feel sorry for herself, we're gonna go help other people, let's go. And before I knew it, I was in the Boys and Girls Club, you know, and organizing support groups for my disease, and that was the spirit of my grandmother. So even though she had regrets, she lived large, she was an Eleanor Roosevelt type feminist, she, she, she led with her heart and, and let the logic and the politics follow. Um, she would never accept no for an answer. It's maybe and yes, we'll try that and maybe we'll do this. And you know, she just didn't compromise on her values. One, one interesting thing that Reverend Sharp said later in life was that uh, only childish, I mean, sorry, childless um, people should undertake this kind of work now, I'm sure. Uh, he, he would have thought differently um, had he had more time to reflect on it. Um, and I'm sure the USC does not think uh, that way, but he obviously paid the, the high price of discipleship. Um, I do want to say, and maybe you can tell us more about this, uh, as far as I know, Syrian parents um, are most concerned now, of course, about feeding their children, their children, first of all, feeding their children, but about education. Lots of these kids haven't been to school for two years mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid to walk in the streets because bombs can explode and do explode or bullets can fly by. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if I can put this question to you is what, uh, what Americans can do particularly for education and it's mostly grammar school education for, you, for very young kids. Excellent question. Hannah, can I toss that to you? This is one of my colleagues. I have not. I don't have a. I don't have a direct experience with um, with providing with. Well, just so you guys know, we don't generally do direct services. We have what's called an eye to eye model, and that's important because uh, we don't essentially believe in sort of swooping in and providing the. <coughs> I won't be political here, but sort of like our idea of what the best solution is, um, but instead look to grassroots organizations on the ground, and we do have some grassroots organizations we work with um, in the region. Mm -hmm. But do we work particularly with education at all? This is Hannah Hafter, who's in our advocacy department. Yeah, if the person with the mic can get you a mic, you can respond quickly. <laughs> I just want to give you guys a, a real answer, not a non-answer here. I regret that my answer is not something you can go and do today when you leave this building, because I would love to have something that simple for all of you. Um, but what I do want to note is that when it comes to refugee education, um, we have to stop thinking that other people need to come in from afar and volunteer and educate refugees and they don't have resources of their own. Because within the communities of people who have fled, there are teachers, there are professors. And so we need to be supporting the um, the local strengths that exist to be able to create infrastructures where kids are safe to learn and where the knowledge that does exist can be shared. Um, now, in terms of the work that we're doing with UUSC, um, because our advocacy is entirely focused on the US government, we don't try to change other countries' governments. Um, our focus is on our own. Um, most of the work we're doing is related to uh, raising the refugee quota, what we were talking about, increasing the numbers of refugees that the United States is accepting. Um, although we've increased numbers numerically, we have not uh, come anywhere near what would be our fair share in terms of our population and the size of our economy um, to <laughs> commit to uh, taking in refugees. Um, I'm sorry I don't have a, much of a stronger answer in terms of uh, ways people can support education, but I think it's incredibly important to um, be remembering mm -hmm. that uh, these resources exist within refugee communities too, mm -hmm. um, and to be advocating that uh, the solutions really include those communities in the conversation rather than kind of thinking about coming in and saving somebody. I have an answer. <laughs> 
So I personally work on education mostly, um, advocating for refugees' education, as myself was given a scholarship by Bard College uh, to, con to continue my education. And when I think of my refuge in the US, I think of when I started Bard, when I resumed my education, it was the transformative moment in my journey as a refugee. It was literally moving from surviving in my first year and a half here to thriving. So I can't, it's, we all know the importance of education, right? It's, it's, it's like very known, but it is so real. And you can do so many stuff. If we want to talk about the US um, here, as for the 10, we have now 12,500 refugees. And we have many young people who need education. As, and as we all know, specifically for higher education, it's very expensive for Americans th themselves. Talking about people who came, come with nothing here. There are a couple, couple of organizations working on this. I'm personally working with the uh, Institute for International Education, IIE. Uh, it's a very big American inst uh, educational institution, and it's known for its uh, study abroad program for Americans, for Fulbright, but also they have an amazing project um, called Syria Consortium, where universities could join this consortium and help IIE to give scholarships to Syrian students. In addition to this, there is another organization working in the U.S. called JUSUR, G-S-U-O-O-R, and it's, it works in a partnership with IIE, and, but they are an independent organization. They literally, last week, they brought 10 Syrian women on a scholarship to different universities in the US. However, the obstacles that come with education, as we are in Harvard, talking about education, um, the bureaucracy of these schools, unfortunately, the bureaucracy of uh, educational institutions in the US, um, they come personally, they, I was asked for uh, an official transcript from my school. Consider, I mean, Harvard asked for this, you know, all schools asked for this, an of sealed official transcript. This is actually um, so unrealistic uh, for so many reasons. One of the reasons, for example, even if I was able to have one when I was in Syria, when I fled my home, it was bombed. So I did not take my official transcript with me. Secondly, if you, are, if you were a political activist and you fled because you were detained by Assad regime and then eventually you had to flee the country, you can't communicate with your school and ask them for an official sealed transcript to be sent to the US, which now in Syria as an ally of terrorism now, that's supporting the opposition. It's just so unrealistic, not talking about wanting a high, high score in TOEFL. First, TOEFL is so expensive back home. Not all of us have it, English as just very default education in our educational system. And then they ask you here, well, we'll accept you, we'll give you a scholarship, but have TOEFL, official transcript, uh, your very high educational. It just does not work like this. Institutions need to be practical, need to, need to go along personal cases. Bart took me with nothing, no, no English no transcripts, nothing. They said, come, we'll start from the beginning together. And I wish many institutions such as BART could take more initiatives and not only make a headlines of, oh, we have a scholarship for Syrian students because when you read the headlines and then you read the details, oh, no living expenses. Well, you, own your, you obtain your own visa. You come on your own cost. I just, I, I make a call here that we can, do, we can do more, and it's not, we don't need to invent anything. It's out there, but we just need to do it. Great, thank you for that challenge. Uh, now we'd like to open this um, for questions from all of you, and please do wait for the roving mic to uh, make it to you. So just raise your hand, I'll call on you, and then the mic will come. There you are. Hello. Um, Artemis, thank you for, I, I guess, what would be a footnote in this film, um, that clip about, um, of Harry Bingham. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, uh, and this would also go to the discussion about what personal qualities would lead one to. 
I suppose it would be hard to find a more waspy person than the Bingham, the Bingham family. Uh, and of course, it's a very interesting one with Tiffany's and Machu Picchu, and they did have missionaries to Hawaii, I believe it was. Um, but in his case, I mean, he was inside the government. He was the consular officer in Marseille and uh, was issuing valid visas, <laughs> but against his boss's um, wish. And his boss was somewhat, shall we say, anti-Semitic. But, I mean, he, he ultimately was sacked from state for doing that. It was a high personal cost. He really never kind of worked again. He maybe didn't have to, but, um, but again, you know, personally, I don't think he had any sort of history of persecution to help others. He just apparently felt it was the right thing to do and, and put his career on the line. So anyway, thank you. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things we want to show in this film are the exceptional number of underground, not just institutions, but individuals like Bingham who played this role, Varian Fry as well. There are others like Leon Ball that you've probably never heard of. Um, it's an undiscovered part of American history. And one of the most exciting things for me in working with Harvard and in this conversation is the notion, the notion that you know, 200,000 documents live in this institution of direct rescue of what the Sharps and the Unitarians did. And these are all names still to be discovered. There are all these families that are still, you know, um, I mean, every time we reach out to someone and find someone who my grandparents rescued or vice versa, where they find us, there is a tremendous sense of not just closure in their story, but understanding how they got to America and how lucky they are uh, to be here. So I think that's part of what we want to encourage. It's a very positive way of looking at the Holocaust, um, to look at these, you know, you think about six million people were killed. It's a very abstract number to understand. But when you look at it like we do, the potentiality of life, each person being a doctor, being a writer, being a poet, you realize what's at stake today. You realize the same human potentiality that existed when six million people were killed during this period that exists today. And we can't let that happen again. And we, we know how to do it. We, for example, we need a Marshall Plan for the Middle East. We need a plan with our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters to invent a peaceful way for them to live together. But it's not going to happen by just bombing and killing. It's going to happen with education. It's going to happen with realizing that the real assets of these communities are the people. Um, so that's what I think is, 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 is a beautiful part of not just these individual stories, but the individuals today who are doing this and to encourage the institutions and the individuals, but to get connected, to get worried about each other, to worry about how do we help your family. And, you know, there's five other families, and who's a lawyer who can do some work there? Well, let's get that lawyer involved. And before you know it, you're building these kind of consensual communities of love that will, you know, save a life, you know? And that's what Martha was talking about when she talked about miracles. She was talking about that sense that it is impossible to imagine that you could rescue someone today, you yourself. But working in a community, you can do it. And, 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 and whether this institution knows that they have been involved with rescue, Harvard Divinity School has been part of the inspiration of this conversation. So that is why the history is so important, is not just to study history and say, oh, what a great place we have done and all the great achievements. It's no, we're teaching people to do the same work today. You know, that's, that's what's the beautiful part of this conversation, is not just to celebrate my grandparents, but to say, this is happening right now, and what are we gonna do about it? And we don't all have the answers, but through a conversation like this, we can imagine that. Hi, um, I, I, this is not 
I hope we can avoid it being a political question, but we probably can't. One of the things that's happened this year um, is the emergence in the public consciousness of the alt-right in America, of anti-Semitism, of this very, very dark part of um, American society. And um, those people don't go away after November 9th. Um, we have, we've been talking about some very altruistic moments here, but what are we going to do here on November 9th to address this division in our own country? I leave it for the Americans. <laughs> I don't want to go to Canada, I want to stay here. Do something. It's actually a really interesting question because it sounds like what you're asking is actually how to heal our own wounds, not how to necessarily address our immigration problems, which is another major issue, right, that we'll have to address politically. Um, but that's, I think that is something that we can all probably at least reflect on. Um, and I, I can't speak politically, at, you know, because of my position anyway. Um, but I think that, uh, but I think that it really does at least my instincts are that it comes back down to what Artemis has been bringing us to all night, which is continued sort of uh, work together, continued conversation, uh, the willingness to engage other people. Um, and in this case, it might not be because they need our help, or at least they might not think they need our help, um, but, but because they disagree with us, or because they, uh, you know, because they seem like they're on the other part of a political divide. So it seems like that humanism, I mean, my instincts at least tell me that that humanism to some extent must expand in that direction as well um, to people who we want to, um, to people who we want to, uh, to convince or to persuade as well. So that's at least an initial thought. I, I think the other piece is inter, interfaith connections, seeing where we agree rather than fighting about where we don't agree. Um, I think those kind of connections, um, you know, diving into the Quran and reading about the Quran, reading the actual Quran, not not listening to, you know, people on the radio or the TV talking about Islam, but learning about it, um, it not just as a cultural conversation, but looking at where the peace is in, in the Quran and where's, you know, where's those connections between Jewish faith and Muslim faith and Christian faith and, and all the faiths that unite us. Um, and I think we need a revolution of love in, in our world. And, and that revolution comes from leadership like the Pope. I think we have people who, who are right now exhibiting tremendous courage. And I think we just need to see this as a moment where we all have to do that as well. I think our Dean would like the final question. No. No, it's not a final question, it's a response to the question before that we, um, so there is a Religions and Practice of Peace initiative at Harvard that um, has been gaining in strength over the, the past couple of years and we are dedicating our session on November 10th to the question that was asked yeah. about mm -hmm. how we think about these things and you know, we've got a, a, again another um, distinguished panel and, and some you know, I, I hope serious thought about the, the, the question that's just been presented. So, um, uh, this room, same time on um, November 10th, come and join us and we'll think more about that very question. Uh, two days after the election, I think. Yeah. Okay. And Crystal Knock, the last day of Crystal Knock. Okay, that's a great invitation. I said it was the last question because I was watching the clock. Uh, <laughs> So at this point, I'd like to invite Doug uh, back to the podium to uh, round this out. Um, may, may, may I say a few thank yous, too? Because I want to say, first of all, to this incredible, would you come over and sit next to her so I can thank you two together? <laughs> These two ladies were acknowledged in the beginning, but they are the reason we are here today. They are my friends and my colleagues, and they have supported this project and me personally uh, for from the you know 20 years of doing this work so I just want to thank you too love you very much
And I want to uh, do a shout out for Jessica Suarez. Where is my dear Jessica Suarez? She is the librarian. I think, I think we have as many emails as I have with anyone over the last 20 years, 15 years. Jessica Suarez, and I want to mention Fran O'Donnell, who recently passed away, who is one of my dear, dear colleagues in this project, um, um, who really helped us bring the story to life with these documents. And so the Harvard Library System is, um, is remarkable to work with. And then finally, Larry Rothstein, who he and I created No Limits Media and uh, is a Harvard uh, education uh, teacher and PhD and, and, and bringing issues of disability and difference into our conversations at Harvard. So I just wanted to acknowledge you, sir. So thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Artemis. And thank, let's thank our panelists for this uh, really stimulating discussion. So uh, I just want to pick up on two passing remarks that two of our panelists mentioned. I didn't mention earlier that my role here at HDS is to direct the library. So these are very librarian type observations. Bibliographic footnotes uh, to this discussion because I think this has probably stimulated many of us to want to know more and to learn more. Uh, Artemis mentioned uh, that there are more names to be discovered and stories to be told and he made a passing reference to the fact that we have here in our archives, uh, page after page, hundreds of thousands of pages of history uh, from the uh, service committee from that era. Uh, and um, how many pages, Jessica, have been digitized? So 200, I think that's what you were referring to, 200,000 pages of these documents have been digitized and are available for you to search on the web. So. So start, start looking for those names. Mm -hmm.